Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. We have an ability as human beings to imagine different places in the world. And maybe you've done this before. Sometimes, you know, I think about back in Minnesota, what my family is doing. Or on Sundays, I think about the church in Iraq and what they're doing, having been there. And I kind of begin to imagine people and what they're doing. And maybe you've done that before. Maybe places where you've lived before or family or, or just you think about different countries in the world. You think, what's going on? We have this ability to kind of, in some sense, do that, to kind of go places in our minds and our imaginations. So this morning, let's do that with heaven. You've done it before, right? Try to imagine heaven. What is it like? Most everybody wants to think about and, and want to know the details of what heaven is going to be like. Even some people who don't go to church or any Christians, they may even ask you, what is heaven like? Give me some details. This passage, Jesus tells us about heaven. He tells us who will be great. What more incentive do we need than that, right? See what Jesus says here? Whoever does these commandments and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling us to think about forwardly into heaven and think about for all eternity. There are going to be people in heaven walking around who are going to be called great. And also there are going to be people who are going to be called small, who are going to be called least. You have an opportunity right now in following Christ to set that in motion by your beings to Christ, that one day you could be called great by God forever and ever. I don't know if I can offer you anything greater than that. Can I give you 20 bucks? <laughs> we finished the Beatitudes. We've seen this warning from Jesus last week and to heed his teaching. We have to take it in so we can be salt and light. And now we remember that Matthew is writing to a Jewish community. You can almost read their minds and what they're thinking. Okay, Jesus, you got some good teaching there, but what about the law and the prophets of the Old Testament? What are you going to do with that? Are you just going to ignore it? You're just going to bring new things in your teaching? Because what about Moses, this great man of God who gave us the Ten Commandments from God? I remind that Jesus was raised on the law and the prophets. This is what he ate of. He was taught the law and the prophets. He memorized them. He honored them. He had the fringes and the tassels on his garments to remind him of God's commandments. And Jesus here comes out very strong, very authoritative, and saying the Old Testament stands. I did not come to abolish it. And he says it twice. 
doubly emphatic. In no way would Jesus ever think of about overthrowing the whole Old Testament. Some people today, though, they hear that word or that phrase, Old Testament, and they might think, how irrelevant, how boring, do we really even need it? We've got Jesus' teaching and the apostles' teaching. Why would it even be necessary? I mean, really kind of how our culture thinks today, if anything is old, it's about worthless, if it's old. Sometimes it's hard to get people interested in the first two-thirds of their Bibles. We see in the early church how there was debates about different things in the law. And a big question along with this is, why were some of the Jews rejecting Jesus, their Messiah? And through different things, including that, you could wonder, it's like, hmm, maybe they'll just reject the Old Testament. Maybe they'll just take on the New Testament. But as we look at the early church, the Old Testament scriptures were read in worship services. They were read and studied, and they were part of the normal everyday diet of the early church. All of us probably have a great amount of knowledge about Jesus that we have built up and accumulated. But apart from the Old Testament, Jesus really makes no sense. Where did he come from? Why are you talking like that, Jesus? What do these things mean that you are teaching us? What's the whole thing about the cross and, and dying and your suffering and resurrection? That makes no sense. Where are you getting all this from? Is Jesus to be understood in any significant way apart from the Old Testament? I mean, how do we get any understanding of him apart from the Old Testament? Is God just doing something new in this person called Jesus? Or is something being continued previously? This morning, we have two parts of the sermon here. The first part is focusing on Jesus' work in fulfilling the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to only scratch the surface here this morning. This is a big issue in the New Testament. But then the second part, we're going to focus on how we as disciples fulfill the Old Testament law. Not in the same way as Jesus, but to think of God's Word, the Old Testament, in the same way as Jesus. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to have to revere God's Word in the Old Testament just like Jesus, so that we can fulfill the law. So first part, Jesus' work here in fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. Two main points I want to make about this. First point here is that the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures is what is being pointed to throughout all the Old Testament. We have this word fulfill in verse 17. We've already seen it here in the Gospel of Matthew. Back in chapter 1, verse 17. Back to chapter 2, verse 15. And of both those passages, Matthew is alluding to Old Testament prophecies and how Jesus fulfills them. He fills them up. They're all about Jesus. And this reminds us that the Old Testament points to and converges on the person of Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures, divinely inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, 
are incomplete in themselves because the Old Testament was witness to something that was going to come, something greater than what in itself could testify to. It leaves us with holes and questions, expectations and predictions. If you're reading the Old Testament back in the day, that time period, you would ought to think of it like this. Where is this all going exactly? I see little bits and pieces, but this is going somewhere. Where is it all going? And now we know it is all about Jesus. It was never just about Abraham or Joseph or Moses or David. Think about it like this. You're driving certain places and a lot of times you'll see markings on the roads trying to point you in the right direction. Sometimes there are these big white arrows in the road, right? Pointing you forward. Sometimes you'll see may them in a row. Just stay in this lane and keep going. Or you'll see a, a right turn kind of mark on the road, white paint. Go right, sharp angle. Or it'll be like a, a gentle uh, curve coming up in the road. And it'll kind of warn you about that. And you just follow them to some degree. And that's how we can think of the Old Testament, the different people in the Old Testament. We just keep following them. We keep going down the trail. We, we don't stop with them because it's pointing us somewhere else. And all of these key figures, in fact, all the Old Testament, all that's going on there is pointers saying this way. Just keep going. Keep going. You'll find out where you're going to go in a little while. You'll see it. And all those pointers lead us to Jesus. This means that Jesus is the center of God's revelation. Jesus is the center of all of God's revelation. We think about all different ways that God has revealed himself to us. We think of creation and nature. That's a big way, right? We think of us being made the image of God. We think about Israel and how God worked through Israel in the exodus and the temple and the giving of the law. We can think of the Bible, right? God's special revelation to us. In some sense, we can think of those as concentric circles, and in the very, very middle, in the heart of all circles, is Jesus. And only in Jesus does all those other kinds of revelation make sense. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Creation, nature, in some sense, points to Jesus. We are to point to Jesus. Exodus was to point to Jesus. Israel was to point to Jesus. All of it, wrapped up together, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. You can enjoy so many aspects of God's revelation, but unless you have Jesus, you are empty. You can go to the glorious mountains and see all their grandeur, but if you do not end up praising and worshiping Jesus, it is all for nothing. And people go to various places all the earth and they marvel at them, but they never say, they never think of the name of Jesus. And that is absolutely worthless. Every beautiful flower in Kinston is worthless. Apart from Jesus. I don't care what kind of fuzzy feelings you get. They're worthless apart from Jesus. Without Jesus, you have nothing. He's the center of all of it. This also refers to his work of righteousness and salvation. 
We see all kinds of these works of God, of righteousness and salvation in the Old Testament. All different kinds of events, people, institutions, encounters with God, ideas. Again, all this reminds us ultimately of what is coming in Jesus and his righteousness and salvation. Abraham about to sacrifice his son. Jacob and his wrestling with God. Noah and his work of saving people. Joseph and being forsaken. We get all the sacrificial system and all that goes along with all those sacrifices, the priests and the high priests, the altars and all the purity laws. You've got the kingdoms and the kings, royalty and power and authority and rule. You've got ideas like wisdom, light and hope, salvation and mercy. You've got different events like creation and the flood, burning bush, the exodus and the giving of the law, Abraham, Noah, Moses, kings, prophets, high priests, all that God was doing there to show his righteousness and bring a salvation, all of it now points ahead to Jesus because he is God's righteousness and God's salvation to us. And if we're going to better understand all that we have in Jesus, we have to study the Old Testament. We've got to look at these people what they thought about, how they related to God, different things that God did in their lives. We look at all that. We say, ah, this tells me so much more now about Jesus as I study the New Testament. I understand now God's righteousness and his salvation in Christ so much more. I just think of one event in the Old Testament. I think about Jacob and his wrestling with God. What an amazing event in Genesis 32 where this God comes down in some type of being and he wants Jacob to let go of him and Jacob refuses to let him go. What a picture of us in our pursuit of Jesus. We're just not going to let him go. You're not getting away from me, Jesus. I can't, in some sense, I can't control you. You're God, but I cannot afford to get away from you. And I'm going to stick with you no matter what. No matter if you touch me and you hurt me for my good, I am going to stick with you and hang on to you as much as I possibly can. Do not leave me. That's what that's about. That's what that's all about. Paul writes in Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is our sufficiency before God. He fulfills all what the law and the prophets talk about. If you have Christ, you have everything that God intended you to have for righteousness and for salvation. Moses is not enough. David's not enough. Abraham's not enough. If you add all of them together, they're not enough. Christ by himself alone is the completion and the goal, and the essence of everything that we need. We look to no one else. This also means, think about the Old Testament pointing ahead to Jesus. We think about Jesus' teaching and his interpreting. Jesus' teaching and his interpreting of the Old Testament scriptures. Again, Moses, he was the authentic giver and interpreter of God's law and teaching. But Moses himself wrote in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19, that there's going to be a prophet that's going to come someday. 
And Moses himself says, he will be like me. And then God, in talking to Moses, says, he will be like you. But Moses says in verse 15, to him you shall listen. Moses telling his own people one day, you have to listen to somebody else just besides me. A greater prophet is coming. And here we have Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish or to cancel out Moses. I didn't come to remove him. Jesus not teaching over against Moses. It's not as though he's trying to draw people just away from Moses and have nothing to do with Moses. Jesus actually teaching on the basis of Moses. Now again, why all we have all this here in Matthew? Because we know it's coming here in verses 21 and following through the rest of chapter 5. The way Jesus talks is, he says, you've heard that it was said. Well, who was talking then? Well, Moses. But then Jesus says, but I tell you. So you've heard this from Moses, and it's true, but now you're going to get something more. I'm not going against that, but it's on the basis of what Moses said, I'm going to now add to that. Now in Jesus, there is additional revelation. So as we go through the rest of Matthew 5, this is how we're going to have to think about this. There's more here that we need to understand about the Old Testament, and Jesus provides that. Think of it like this. Grade school days, right? History lessons. Learn some history about the world and about the United States of America. How deep you're going to go about history in third grade? Learn a few dates, maybe, okay? And then you get into high school, and then you're going to learn a little bit more. You go, I didn't know that. That's kind of cool. And then you get to college, what happens? The textbooks get a little bit thicker, a little more learned. And then if you even go on to graduate school, whoa, you're going to know a lot about history, right? Same way of knowing truth about God. Moses gave you so much. But now we get so much more now in Jesus. Even in this, through the greater Moses, Jesus, we are coming closer to the character of God and to God himself through his word and truth in Jesus. All the points ahead of Jesus. Second point here about this. Jesus affirms his continual work in fulfilling the eternal Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is still at work fulfilling the eternal Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus is committed to this under the guidance of his heavenly Father. What we see here in Jesus about this, first of all, we see how solemn he is about this. Look what it says there in verse 18. For truly I say to you, for amen. I say to you, this is Jesus in some sense taking a solemn oath, making a statement about the gravity and the serious nature of the word of God. Truly, I say to you. Let me ask you this morning, how solemn are you with the words of God, the words of God in the Old Testament? We know in the Gospels that Jesus would spend different nights in prayer with his heavenly Father. And this was something that he did routinely. This wasn't once in a while. He would spend nights with his heavenly Father all alone praying. 
But what would a good Jew do in praying? A good Jew wouldn't do it without the law, would they? Jesus would be out there not just praying, but he also would be rehearsing God's word, praying God's word to the Father, communicating with the Father in and through the word of God. What was he doing? Maybe something like Psalm 119, verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Nobody is with Jesus. And what Jesus is doing, he's just lifting his hands. Father, your commandments, they are life to me. Just him and the Father. Psalm 119, verse 62. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Jesus would spend all night in prayer Partly because of this, because at midnight when everybody else is sleeping and they don't think it's important, I'm going to spend time with you, O Lord. I'm going to think about your righteous rules because your righteous rules get me up and they keep me up because I'm thinking about them all the day long. The Old Testament poured forth out of the mouth of God, out of the mouth of Jesus himself. This is his word. It's the Father's word. It's the Spirit's word. In the Old Testament, we have this phrase, thus says the Lord. New Testament, for truly I say to you. The psalmness that Jesus had about the Old Testament. When you have the word of God before your eyes, and when you have it coming in your ears, stop. Get low. Listen, trust, revere, meditate. Don't be goofing around. Don't be walking around. Listen, God is speaking to you. Bring yourself under discipline and say, this is God Almighty speaking to me. Help me not to trifle with his voice. When people stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, when they stand for the National Anthem, it's expected that you're going to be quiet. You're going to sing when it's time to sing, but you're going to show respect and show reverence. So when you have a Bible and you have it open or someone has a Bible open before you and they're preaching, what are you doing? Are you getting low in your heart saying, I better get down real low if I'm going to receive this word, otherwise this word will come and judge me. I've got to listen to this word. Be solemn with the word of God. Also, the totality of the Old Testament scriptures, verse 18. Not a iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. This refers to probably Old Testament Hebrew letters, small letters or, or ways to kind of construct a few letters to make sure you knew exactly which letter you have. Be very, very careful in how you made those letters. Jesus even thinking about that in terms of the law, the very, very letters of the alphabet. Sometimes we just kind of think generically. Yeah, I love the word. I know the word and I do the word. But how narrow do we get down to the whole of it, the totality of it? Verse 20, Jesus refers to the scribes. The scribes would be those who would help copy scriptures. The temple always had to have lots of copies for people to use. A lot of people would use scrolls and books 
But they would guarantee the authenticity of these works. They were the authentic interpreters of them. Here's just a couple rules that they would actually follow when they would copy scriptures. Before they started making a copy of a book of the Bible, the Old Testament, they would wash their bodies completely. Want to make sure they were clean before they begin to attempt to copy God's word. In the different letters and words and paragraphs, all of it had to be counted. The middle paragraph, the middle word, the middle letter had to correspond exactly to the original. Otherwise, you discarded it. You took care of it the way they told you to take care of it. It was a very specific way if you had to discard it because you already were attempting to copy God's word. And so if you made a mistake, be careful even how you discard it. Is there anything unimportant in the Old Testament that we should not heed or seek to understand in light of Jesus? Yes, some things change a little bit through Jesus, but everything is relevant in one way or another. Point us ahead of Jesus and help us better understand him. We're living in an age of people are making exceptions all the time for God's word. Well, God's word's a little out of date here now. We think this way about the world, or we think this way about what is right and what is wrong, because, you know, we've advanced a little bit past the Bible. What's interesting here, according to Jesus, not only does the Old Testament stand in absolute authority, but Jesus, by his authority, extends God's law even more and intensifies it. While people today, including some people who are Christians, try and take away from God's law, Jesus came along and intensified it. Obviously, if you know this passage, we're going to come back to this. But the totality of it. Also, the entirety of God's will. Jesus is going to finish and complete doing the Old Testament word of God. He's going to fulfill it. Because all the entirety of God's will is going to be accomplished. Verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The Old Testament told about and predicted what was going to come in the age of salvation, the age of redemption in Jesus. And Jesus is saying he is now fulfilling this and he will fulfill it. Meaning even right now in this age, he is at work doing this. And when he comes back a second time, all of it is going to be completed. All that the Old Testament talked about, Jesus will fulfill all of that. There will be a new world, according to Matthew 19, 28. Jesus will give a new birth to the world. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And God's word is being affected by Jesus for the Father, by the Spirit. And he will bring in this new world. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He is doing work that you and I cannot do, but he's doing work in us so that we now can fulfill the law as disciples of Jesus. So let's move to the second point here. Disciples of Jesus fulfilling the law. I don't know if you've thought about that very much, but we also fulfill the law. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what God has done... What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You hear that? 
the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us. How do we do that? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So as Jesus says here in verse 19, therefore, that's our bridge, isn't it? Jesus does all this work, and now Jesus begins to address us as disciples. Jesus has great respect. He's going to fulfill the Old Testament. Now he comes to us and says, have the same attitude. You also now must uphold God's law. What does this mean? The smallest things of God's word and will done by disciples will determine kingdom ranking. In heaven, forever and ever, we will have established ranks. Once you get in heaven, you can't, like, rank up. Right now, by what you do in your obedience to Jesus, will determine your ranking. And if you have a high regard for God's word and his law, and you want to keep even the smallest portions of it, again, Jesus says you will be called great. Verse 19, though, Jesus begins with whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Whoever relaxes them. Isn't that what everyone's saying today? I mean, you talk about how appropriate, right? Everybody is telling us Christians, just relax. You're getting a little too serious about righteousness and holiness. Don't you really care about people? Don't you really love people? Well, people should be free to do what they want to do, right? So just chill. Relax these commandments a little bit. This whole thing about marriage, we're talking about homosexuality marriage or divorce, what Jesus will address here. Other items of righteousness and holiness where it's about abortion. All kinds of people are telling us it's okay what you're doing. And Jesus says that if you relax God's commandments and you say, it's okay, God's really cool with me if I disobey him. In fact, I'll probably encourage others as well. Don't worry about that so much. God understands. God is loving and merciful. He doesn't really care that much about obedience. If that is you, which I hope it's not, you're in heaven one day, people are going to say, those were the least are right over there. They're the least. The least. They didn't have great concern about God's law. They trifled with it. How would you forever and ever like to be called least? This, I'm sorry to tell you, but this is exactly what Jesus is saying. We don't think of it that way because we don't like to think that way. But if heaven is heaven, and heaven is forever, some people in heaven, in some sense, are going to be called least. I don't know what that's going to be. But, Jesus says, whoever does and teaches even the smallest of things, they will forever be called great. And me, when I thought about this, I thought about the king Herod the Great. Right? Time of Jesus' birth. He was known as Herod the Great. And he got to have great by his name for a few years. Good job. Good job, Herod. 
People came before your throne and said, you are great. But Jesus says, if you treat my law like this, you will be called great forever and ever. So when and where do you want to be called least? And when and where do you want to be called great? Because the way Jesus is teaching us, if you're going to be called great in heaven forever and ever, probably, based on what Jesus is teaching here, you will be called least now. You'll have to be called least. Because people think you care about God's word and God's law too much. And you just need to learn to go with the flow. According to John 14, Jesus is preparing heaven for us right now. I'm not saying this in a heretical sense. Based on what Jesus is teaching here, you are preparing heaven for yourself right now. Second point here about us feeling the law, the righteousness of disciples must be abundant. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a shock, isn't it? It's kind of hard. Because sometimes we've been told by people, all you got to do is say a prayer. All you got to do is walk forward and say a prayer, and it's done. In fact, we see bumper stickers that say, just forgiven. That's heresy. Don't ever put that bumper sticker in your car, because that's not true. We're not just forgiven people. We are transformed people. We're in the process of being transformed. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were known for their commitment to the law and the prophets. They were zealous and scrupulous. In fact, most everybody else said, I can't compete with that. I'm just going to stay away from those people because there's no way I can do the righteousness that they are doing. And Jesus says, you see them? Go beyond them. In fact, you must, otherwise you'll never see the pearly gates. We see in Matthew chapter 23 is how Jesus denounced these scribes and the Pharisees. What were they doing with the law? They were taming it. They were domesticating it. They tried to use the law to make it work for them, to order life as they wanted. And churches can do the same. Where we can try and order the word of God and tame it or be ordered by it. This sounds frightening what Jesus is talking about here, but all Jesus is talking about is the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. They looked ahead to the day when there would be a people who would have God's law written in their hearts, on their hearts. And so there would be people who would want to do God's law, who would want to obey righteousness. Jesus I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. How does Jesus do that? When he saves us and gives the Holy Spirit, now we can do righteousness. And this is our task, is to fulfill the righteousness of the Old Testament. Jesus does the work, the obedience, the sacrifice, the resurrection. And the basis of that, he comes and writes his law on our hearts. 
This means we must have a better righteousness, a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, according to Matthew 23, they're good preachers, the scribes and the Pharisees, but they just don't practice it. They put burdens on others. They do deeds to be seen by others. They care more about what others think than what God thinks. And don't miss this, though. Scribes and Pharisees and disciples of Jesus do the same actions for the most part. Scribes and Pharisees, true followers of Jesus, do the exact same actions. They all get up on Sunday morning, they all get dressed, and they all come to church. They all try and do some good deeds. They all try and obey God's law. They're doing the same things. But disciples of Jesus have a heart change. They're humble, and their motivation is so that people would give glory to their Father in heaven and not to themselves. The scribes and Pharisees were saying, look at me, look at my righteousness. A disciple of Jesus says, don't you dare look at me. Look at my Father. We talked about that last week, right? Would you like to shine before others? Let me see your good, we- good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But also the scribes and the Pharisees, they would not listen to Jesus' teaching, Right? They would not honor him. And so because of that, they can't do this righteousness because they won't listen to Jesus. But we listen to Jesus, and that's why we end up having a better righteousness. But if we have a better righteousness, that means we have more righteousness. This is also quantitative. There will be more. You follow and obey Jesus, and you will have more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. We kind of skip over that a lot, don't we, Then with the Great Commission? What we're supposed to do is we go and have classes at church or Bible studies. Our goal is not just to get them down to a so-called altar and say a prayer, but they would obey Jesus in everything that he has commanded. Some people are frightened by this call to obedience because they think it violates God's free grace. Some people might say, well, there's a temptation here, right? If this is about righteousness, how much righteousness do I have to do? When is it enough righteousness? This whole teaching here scares me. When do I know I've done enough? If you are thinking in that terms, there's a chance that you have misunderstood the kingdom of heaven. When the law is written on your heart and God's love and mercy is there and you know your Father who is in heaven... You know how he cradles you in his forgiveness and mercy, and you are comforted by him, and yet you know that because of his grace, you have an eternal drive inside of you to know him and to want to obey him, that his law, his love is better than life. Counting righteousness, that's the farthest thing from your mind. Counting righteousness has no merits. There's no meriting in this but you know what? Your Father wants you to be like Him. Verse 48. 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Think with me as we close here just about the perfect earthly father. I know I'm not that. (laughs) But think about the perfect earthly father that we wish we all had. Maybe had some good earthly fathers, maybe we didn't. But think about the perfect earthly father where they would have such a delight in you, such a love for you, There was such a forgiveness and a mercy. They were quick to forgive you. They were quick to comfort you, even though you may have screwed up terribly against your father. And you know his embrace for you. And now you just want to please him. You just want to bring delight to him. It's not strenuous effort like you have to keep him loving you, but it's an effort of joy and delight because of what you share together. This all just fits in Psalm 139 where God knows you. I'll never forget my first church, we were going through Psalm 139. I can't remember if I was teaching this psalm this day, but a person in this class was saying, Psalm 139 is scary. God knows everything about me and he's going to judge me. And that's how they were interpreting Psalm 139. I was like... (laughs) No, no. God knows you and loves you as you are. And his love is firmly committed to you. He knows everything about you. He doesn't turn away from you. And he's going to track us down no matter where we go. This is a psalm that brings us great comfort and peace. Because it's not so much that you claim to know God, but in your heart. And I can't do this for you. But in your heart, you know that you are known by God. The Almighty God, creator of all things, of all people, that little old you and little old me are known, not as a piece of data, but known and loved. Nothing about counting righteousness there just enjoying and delighting in the Father. Let's pray. Lord, honestly, I don't know if I've done a good job here this morning handling your word. But I trust you, Father, that you can straighten any crooked thing I may have said and make it straight. And that what is cloudy and muddy you can make clear. And I pray, Lord, for the work of your spirit because that's really what matters here, that you will help us to accurately understand your word and then and to love it and to abide by it. I think about Jesus being out there all alone with you, Father, just reciting the scriptures, thinking about the scriptures, how he was thinking about what he would have to do to fulfill your law and how you comforted your son. Lord, I pray we all want that. We all want that. And then in the end, it will be worth it to be called least here by family members, by people who know us. Even if they call us small, insignificant, or crazy, we know one day that our Father, you, just might call us great. May this be true of all of us one day that is coming. 
so very quickly. In Christ's name, amen.